Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of Balloonsadrones.com, where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight into today. I'm your host, Mike Hankins. Now, when it comes to the popular conception of modern warfare, there's almost always some aspect of air power that becomes iconic, some sort of powerful image that gets deeply associated with a particular conflict. Like when we think of the Korean War, a lot of us instantly think of the F-86 Sabre dueling it out with MiG-15s, or maybe in Vietnam, you know, no aircraft is as iconic as the Huey helicopter. And the Gulf War of 1991 tends to conjure up images of the F-117 Nighthawk stealth fighters. But when it comes to more recent wars of the last two decades, probably the most iconic aircraft are actually drones. Usually MQ-1 Predators, maybe the Global Hawks or some other similar platform, but the images of remotely piloted aircraft have become some of the most pervasive symbols of modern conflict. And just like anything iconic, the subject of drones has led to an outpouring of writing, including several books. And one of those new books is by today's guest, Dr. Michael Boyle. He is an associate professor of political science at Rutgers University and a senior fellow at the Foreign Policy Research Institute and he is the author of The Drone Age, How Drone Technology Will Change War and Peace from Oxford University Press. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Well, let's start with the probably most important question. Why write a book on this? What made you want to start this project about drones? So it's a little bit of a background history in this. I started writing my first kind of scholarly articles on drones in around 2013, 2014, where I started trying to articulate a critique of the use of targeted killings and really a question about whether a counterterrorism strategy that was premised on removing people from the battlefield had secondary strategic effects that were in some way dangerous or offsetting. So I wrote a couple of articles that really asked this question, you know, are we creating recruitment problems? Are we changing the nature of militant networks? Is this producing kind of precedents that other states are going to begin to follow? And that was really where I started to get into the, the studying drones and starting really their effect from a kind of counterterrorism lens. So I really started looking at that. But as I did more reading, I became a bit dissatisfied with a lot of the literature on targeted killings and drones, in part because what it did is it conflated targeted killings and drones themselves, attributing a lot of things to the technology that's really about the policy. But also because I found that when you started to look for books that were written on drone technology, you found some very good histories and you found some accounts that were starting to emerge about kind of pilot experiences. But I didn't find a lot that were generalized books on drones that looked at multiple issue areas. So drones and targeted killings, but also drones and normal military operations, drones and peacekeeping and humanitarian operations. So I conceived of the book really hitting both, as it says in the subtitle, War and Peace. And if you actually look at the book, it's structured the first half really does with war and the second half really does with the peace. And trying to look really at a bigger question about do they change decision making because it seemed to me the real root of the question throughout all of the debates around targeted killing was whether the technology begins to some way shift or alter decision making and that's the sort of underlying uh, argument or, or, or at least question of the book that I try and interrogate across multiple issue domains. But it was really just looking and saying, you know, this is a brand new and exciting technology, but we're looking at it only through one very narrow lens. And I wanted to kind of expand that. Yeah, exactly. And speaking of a narrow lens, I think a lot of people have maybe a little bit of confusion about what drones are or aren't, and especially realizing how many types of drones there are and what they do. I mean, Predator and Global Hawk are probably the more famous ones, although those are kind of out of date now. And those themselves are very different, kind of have different missions. So can you tell us a little bit for the those who may not be familiar about what are the major types of drones and what kind of missions are they doing? It's a great question. So, you know, I think one of the big problems with the category of drones, it's like talking about the category of aircraft and being surprised at all the things that fall under aircraft, you know, the enormous amount of variation there. You see that same level of variation in drones. 
And I think one of the things that happened in a lot of literature is people tended to attribute drone equals predator or drone equals reaper. But in fact, actually, that wasn't true. And in fact, there's a much wider array of drones that are present. Really, if you think about what's kind of the uniting characteristic of drone technology, it's simply that there isn't a pilot in the cockpit. Beyond that, the level of variation among what we consider to be drones is absolutely stark. As I'm sure you know, you know, between the very, very small drones that are quadcopters that you might buy at Best Buy, to the Reapers, to the Global Hawks, and to the, even the higher level surveillance drones. And in terms of sort of broad categorizations, there's lots of different ways that you can cut them. I find it's often helpful to cut it basically on the on question of size. You know, small, medium, and large is often the Air Force characterization of this. And when we start to think about the drones that are really beginning to develop now, as you said, we're shifting away from the medium altitude drones like the Predator and the Reaper and moving much more to a much more diverse array of drones that are often used for battlefield reconnaissance. They're often used for surveillance of fixed positions. So we're seeing a lot more that look like the Raven drones that you can essentially launch uh, from the ground to be able to tell you a little bit more about the battlefield itself. And in fact, actually, instead of kind of going bigger, in a lot of cases, drone technology is shifting away to go smaller. And we're seeing smaller and smaller, sometimes what are called very small UAVs, that model of insects or birds being developed. And a lot of them are kind of cross-prohibitive for a lot of militaries, but we're beginning to see with, the, for example, the development of the Black Hornet drone, those sort of drones are becoming more popular. So instead of fixating on the kind of medium altitude drones like the Predator and Reaper that are largely used for counterterrorism missions, I think we're actually seeing a case under which the technology is expanding at the lower end and we're seeing a lot more diverse small drones that are occupying the market. And I think that's particularly the case now that we're starting to see other suppliers move in. I mean, if you were to look at yeah, the Kasky Rainbow drones that are produced by China that are increasingly being picked up by multiple countries and running from a whole range of sort of missions that you would see the U.S. use a Reaper, for example, but also much smaller than that smaller fixed-wing drones that are being sold to a lot more governments. Drone exports and the explosion of the drone market is changing this a lot, particularly on the end of the kind of what I'd say medium-small and very small dimensions of the drone market. Yeah. And even though these things are really small, they can have a really big impact. You know, you really get into this book, this idea of the impact that drones have on kind of a strategic level. And you make this point that drones are this kind of disruptive technology, that it's not just about a tactical level change that these are bringing, but they're really affecting the way that people think strategically. How is that the case? What is it about drones that changes strategic decision making? Yeah, I think it's a really great question. So I think one of the things that I think is interesting about drones is that sometimes you get people say, well, you know, drones themselves aren't radically different from a lot of other similar technologies. So they can provide a kind of overview of a fixed position in a way that a satellite can. Uh, they can oftentimes move like a cruise missile. So sometimes you get this sort of skeptical argument that says, look, this isn't really anything new. There's nothing exciting about drones that's doing anything different than you might see with a satellite or a cruise missile or, or any other or manned aircraft or any of the other things that you'd see. My argument in the book is that what makes drone technology disruptive is not so much that a, a single uniting feature of it, but more the combination of the features into a single package. The fact that you have the kind of speed associated with a manned aircraft, the sort of vision associated with a satellite technology, the maneuverability that you might see with a sophisticated cruise missile, but you put that into a single package, makes them a disruptive form of technology. And the way I kind of define the disruptive technology itself is one that alters decision making. And I think that's the key element here, that putting all of these different characteristics together in a single package that is available at low cost, then suddenly provides a set of options that were not present to policymakers and what you begin to then see are changes in risk calculations, changes in goals, changes in the way that people conceive of certain missions as a result of having access to the technology. And so I, I think it's important to kind of clarify what we mean by disruptive, because I think that term is thrown around a lot. People say this is disruptive, this is disruptive. And in a kind of Silicon Valley sense, that oftentimes doesn't mean very much. I think here it's really 
putting a whole bunch of characteristics together in a single package, providing it to policymakers at low cost, and then saying, okay, how is this going to kind of change your decision making in a fundamental way? Yeah, yeah. You talk about the policy aspect and presenting this to decision makers, and that's part of this key package is that drones are in some ways connected to the policy world. And there's, you know, there's kind of a misconception a lot of times that drones are this kind of like video game war. You know, you hear people talk like that. But in reality, these missions are very closely supervised. There's a lot of policies that go into these missions. And so you get this idea of the kill chain being very important and very linked to drones. Can you explain what that kill chain is, what the oversight processes are for these missions and how these work? And obviously, I'm talking here about the United States use of drones. Yeah, great question. So thinking about um, the kill chain approach to this, and when we start to think about what it really means to use a drone in this context, first thing to sort of really understand about this is this sort of notion of remote or push button warfare is a little bit of a myth. Some of the critiques that were made very early on especially with the U.S. program, that it was a kind of desensitized remote form of warfare where people were treating more like a video game, simply pressing a button and killing it will. I think it's pretty clear at this point that, especially in the U.S. context, that's simply not true, that almost all drone operations have a very long chain that goes behind them where there is legal authorization, there is you know, lawyers, for example, making sure that it's a legitimate target, that there's even in some cases debates over ethics, but there's also a very large intelligence apparatus behind it. So that the drones themselves are conveying video and conveying feed and also conveying other sources of information from you know, electronic intercepts and so on to collect and collate information to then enable a sort of coherent, precise decision on the ground. In other words, what could you do and how could you launch the strike in a way that, that reduces civilian casualties? And so I think it's important at the first instance to say, you know, when we're thinking about U.S. uses of drones, that very long infrastructure, I mean, some estimates suggest that, you know, behind every drone pilot sits 60, 80, 100 people that are somewhere part of the process that's feeding into the drone itself, whether it would be the people responsible for launching the drone on the ground, or whether it would be the intelligence analysts behind it, or whether it be the lawyers or the policymakers, that there's a, there's a fairly long chain behind it. I think one of the problems the U.S. has was that much of that chain is concealed from the public view. So it's not clear to the average person that's the case. What they see are drones that look a lot like the things you'd see in video games and launching missiles from them, you know, seeming with with complete discretion, when in fact, actually, it's not the case. And in some of the discussions I had when I did the projects with drone pilots and former drone pilots, one of the things I thought was the most interesting about that was to say, you know, we tend to think of drones as surveilling the ground. But in fact, actually, the drone pilots themselves are being very carefully watched. If you think about the experience of being a drone pilot, you know, everything that you're doing is being recorded. Everything that you say is being recorded. Everything that you type is being recorded. And that's not always the case in a lot of other contexts. You know, if you're in a manned aircraft, it's not clear that anybody's recording what you're doing or, or checking your discretionary action. Obviously, you have orders and you're not just sort of making decisions at will. You know, in a sense, the surveillance may be greater with drones because there's such a good record of what they're doing. And when you talk to pilots, sometimes you get this account that says, you know, everyone thinks that I'm not just there making discretionary decisions. In fact, actually, I'm more careful in a drone than I might be in any other context because every single thing I do is being watched, scrubbed, checked. But you also don't have the pressure of time. So you should, in theory, be able, especially with targeted killing operations, to take your time for doing so. So it reduces that kind of pressure to immediately act, which can make mistakes. I think one of the things the U.S. doesn't help itself with, though, is that when there are drone strikes, and we saw this, the account of the drone strike that happened uh, in Afghanistan where there were mistakes, that process, what went wrong in that chain behind the drone strike itself, there's not always a full and public accounting of it. And I think one issue that we have when we think about this from a larger policy vantage point is the U.S. generally says, hey, we've got this really long chain, but we can't tell you much about it. But trust us, we're making considered decisions and these things are done in the most careful and precise way possible. And yet the only thing that the public sees is every once in a while, 
there's something that comes out that there's a mistake and there's sometimes a cover up associated with that mistake. And that's where one of the things I argue in the book is if you want to kind of demythologize drones and, and begin to use this as a routine policy tool, there's an argument to bring some of this into the sunlight and get people to be aware of what the process is and to have a little bit more accountability about how in fact that actually happens. Another thing I want to suggest about this though, I think it's important not to extrapolate too much from the US case to other countries. So when we're starting to think about drone operations, as we've seen expansion of drone technology worldwide, not all other countries that are using drones obviously have the sort of doctrinal operational infrastructure behind the United States. And so though we may be arguing that the U.S. use of drones is governed by fairly strong rules and of engagement and fairly strong levels of oversight inside the bureaucracy itself, it's not self-evident as the technology moves that that's always going to be the case. So I, I think it's important to kind of look at this as a case-by-case -case basis rather than kind of making general assumptions about, you know, drones and every case not being pushed button warfare. Yeah. Since you mentioned this idea of, you know, mistakes being made and you mentioned the issue with Afghanistan recently, and, you know, this is one of the central debates about the use of drones, right? This idea of civilian casualties or potential civilian casualties. And obviously drones are not the only platform that deal with this, right? There was a recent incident with some F-15Es that came to light. Uh, you can go back to previous wars and look at, you know, this, this issue of civilian casualties has always been something that is controversial and generates a lot of debate. But with drones, there's something about drones or maybe the nature of them that seems to get this debate a little bit more heated. So can you maybe explain a little bit about what are the, the debates about regarding civilian casualties with drones? What are the risks? What are the issues at play in that debate? So when we think about this, there is something about civilian casualties with drones that draws more attention than it does with manned aircraft. And there are times when you see you speak to pilots or, or people who are involved in, in operating them and they'll say, you know, I don't understand this obsession with civilian casualties with drones. They're more precise than a lot of other platforms that are available. And certainly if you were to put them next to whether it be artillery, right, fired at a distance, it's certainly more precise and more careful than something like that. So sometimes you get this kind of rejection to say there really is no issue with civilian casualties here. It's overstated. I do think there is an issue with civilian casualties in it. And I think it largely comes back to this question of kind of transparency and accountability. When we go back and look at U.S. drone strikes until essentially the end of President Obama's term, there really wasn't any government produced data on civilian casualties associated with drones. So that sort of absence of transparency produced a space for people to produce multiple estimates for drone strikes about the number of civilian casualties. So we had multiple private organizations that produced estimates that in some cases were very starkly varied. And the problem you have there is that you have a lot of problems with the underlying data. So when we're trying to assess the overall number of civilian casualties, you know, you have the problem that, you know, local actors on the ground may exaggerate the number of civilian casualties to make the United States look bad. You have the case that even if there is a drone strike, sometimes it's not always possible to verify the information depending on where the drone strike is. If it's in a sort of dangerous or ungoverned territory, it's hard for us to be able to verify. You also have the case that we do know that the U.S. downplays the number of drone strikes and in some cases adopts classification mechanisms that are not necessarily probably the best. So, you know, very early on, there were reports that the Obama administration was adopting a criteria that said if you were a military-aged male inside a combat zone that you were considered a legitimate combatant as opposed to a civilian casualty. The Obama administration later came back and said, no, no, we really don't do that. But because in a sense, the criteria by which they decide someone's a combatant or not was so unclear, you wind up with this kind of murkiness around the data itself. And then what we started to see by around 2014, 2015, 2016 was multiple organizations producing multiple conflicting estimates, but the U.S. government's estimate was always the lowest. And that strained credulity that this is essentially what's going on, that there's got to be something wrong here, that the government is systematically undercounting the data or suppressing the data or excluding information. And I think President Obama basically got it right by the end of his term to say, OK, what we need to do is we need to release information on civilian casualties to kind of demystify this and to suggest really how few people are actually being killed by this. And yes, there are accidents. And yes, 
yes, there are mistakes, but it's better for us to have some sort of government-based accountability within limits. I mean, obviously, you can't dump out all the information that you would want to. You have to accept realistically that, you know, there's things you can't say. The problem here was that President Trump ripped that up and there was no accountability throughout his term in office. And it has left really the fundamental problem is that what the U.S. government is doing with drone strikes, you're getting different estimates from different players. We know this political spin associated with some of those estimates. We have no idea what the reality is. Congress isn't having a clear reporting mechanism and the administration isn't producing it. And so I think that that absence of information produces a much larger controversy than might actually be there. And so I would argue for not only a fairly rigorous review process that tries to eliminate the kind of drone mistakes that we saw happen in Afghanistan, and obviously that's a terrible incident, you know, the death of children associated with that, but also the cover-up about what happened and why did this happen in the way that it did. But then secondarily, you know, just producing general data that we can then use against public estimates and some sense of how that data was created. I mean, what the Obama administration did was produce an estimate that had no context to the numbers and no real discussion of method. So as a result, People simply dismissed it rather than treating it uh, as a serious estimate. So I think, you know, improving the accountability, improving the transparency is one way to demystify this and to deal with the issue of civilian casualties. As a larger strategic question, the question is, you know, will civilian casualties produce higher levels of recruitment for terrorist organizations? The bottom line on that is it's very difficult to know. And it's difficult to know because accurate data on recruitment is very difficult to find. There are many reasons why people might join militant organizations. And we know that a lot of times the reasons why people join militant organizations are proximate rather than anything else. We have to be careful not to be in a position under which we are basically creating more than we are killing. And I don't always think that that's the case, but I think it's more the case under which you know, accuracy about civilian casualties, worrying about secondary strategic effects is really important. Yeah. So there are other things as well, other than civilian casualties, there's the psychological effect. And you, you kind of discuss this a little bit from both sides of the fence, so to speak. I mean, you talk about the effects on the people that are being watched, you know, as drones are flying overhead. There's an effect there, even if they're not injured or killed by a strike. There's the sense of what does it feel like to live under that kind of persistent drone flying overhead. But there's also the experience of the operators, you know, the pilots and the crews that are flying these things. You've said that kind of from from all angles that drones tend to make warfare more intimate is the word you use. I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit about what makes war more intimate with the use of drones. Yeah. So we think about the sort of intimacy of the drones themselves and we say, uh, sort of, why is it an intimate form of warfare? Well, the first thing in terms of the effects underneath it, this is one of the things that's an open point about the strategic effectiveness of drones. If you have drones flying overhead, either on regular surveillance missions or in support of a targeted killing operation, is this something that produces stress to people on the ground? And one of the things I try to talk about in the book is there are a lot of accusations from critics of targeted killing to say, look, these are very stressful. Would you want to have drones patrolling over the head and the potential of a drone strike at any particular point, particularly when you don't control them? It's a foreign government controlling it over your head. Is that a good thing to do? And I think you could make a set of ethical arguments about whether it's a good thing to do or not. But the interesting question is, it's very hard to test this data because you need to get really good public opinion uh, data on the ground. And, and some scholars have actually done this and have gotten some fairly good data. And the results are a bit more mixed. Some people obviously are concerned about the effect of living under drones. Others see it as a relief if, for example, they're taking away people who are terrorizing them, because we forget that militants on the ground are often terrorizing people kind of on the ground more than they're hitting the United States. And so what I try and raise in the book is the question about is this a potential strategic loss? And I would argue it is a potential strategic loss, but you need to be careful about the data. And we need much more good on the ground research to be sure whether this is actually something that has an adverse effect on civilian attitudes and then secondarily has an adverse effect on things like recruitment, right, to terrorist organizations. That's an important thing for us to know. In terms of the intimacy of the warfare itself, I think one of the things that strikes me when you look at it is that, you know, when you think about drones, drone strikes particularly, they're done with long periods of surveillance of the target. And this is different than a lot of other military operations where some 
someone may be sent to attack a particular target, but they've not spent a long time surveilling the target itself. The way that particularly military drones are set up with sophisticated ground control stations and the ability to watch a target for hours on end, sometimes for weeks at a time, means that you often get a chance to know the target relatively well. And there have been reports of drone pilots saying, you know, it's not like I'm just completely indifferent to this person. I see them in the morning get up. I see them get into their car. I see them maybe say goodbye to their family. I watch them from long periods of time. So though we tend to have this kind of stereotypical image of the drone as a form of technology that induces distance, and in a sense it does because the pilot's not in the aircraft, and the pilot in many cases may be thousands of miles away in a ground control station, there's also a degree of intimacy to it in the sense that you know your target very well. You know who this person is. And then in part because of the concerns over civilian casualties, but also in part because of some of the concerns associated with just kind of running an efficient operation, drone pilots are often asked to stay and watch the ground after the strike happened. So again, unlike a, a manned aircraft, for example, where you might drop a bomb and continue to fly away back on the rest of the mission that you're on, here you're circling over and watching the effects of what you just did. And there have been accusations and, and claims that drone pilots suffer from higher levels of PTSD as a consequence of the kind of remarkable intimacy of the warfare itself. So I think that's one of the reasons why drones attracts so much attention, at least from a military vantage point. On the first blush, it looks like something that introduces distance to warfare. But unlike a nuclear weapon where I might press a button and a missile flies thousands and thousands of miles away, I'm actually watching the effects of it up close in a way that I don't normally do so. I think it's some of those disjunctures. You know, it's remote, but it's intimate. It's it's a highly technical form of warfare with a really high human consequence, which is one of the reasons why it attracts so much attention and so much concern and so much unease, because there is a degree of unease associated with drone technology that is maybe disproportionate to the technology itself. Yeah, you mentioned this idea of this persistence, right, that drones can be over an area for a long time and the operators are watching the same people for a very long period of time. You know, for advocates of drones, this is obviously one of the biggest assets that they provide, right? It's this kind of long-term persistence over a target area. But one of the things that that may risk that you've talked about here in this book is the risk of information overload, right? There's so much data coming in through these drones. You kind of argue that it might create a desire to get even more information that creates this kind of loop. So is there something about drones that maybe more so than other previous ISR platforms kind of creates this information overload effect or this desire for more information? Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic that goes on. I mean, I think the desire for more information is a kind of recurring trend within especially the U.S. military over the last 20 to 30 years. I mean, if you, you know, all of the debates over information dominance and trying to have perfect knowledge of the battlefield to tame clausewitz to make sure there's no error, I think that's a trend in the military more generally. I think drones tap into that trend in the sense that they are able to provide a lot of information. The expansion of surveillance capabilities, the sheer number of surveillance drones that the U.S. military is flying at any one point in time is producing enormous amounts of data, enormous amounts of video that then has to get analyzed by that very long intelligence chain that follows. And that's actually producing some really Really interesting consequences because you've got this really long intelligence chain that has to analyze this data and they've been fairly frank about it's a problem to analyze the amount of data that you have and this is one of the reasons why there's such an investment in AI as a way of being able to do a first cut of through the information that you're getting from the drone itself and so I think what happens with drones is they, they kind of add to this information overload and that can have real impacts in a couple different ways one is it could really slow the tempo of the battlefield and that's an important thing to think a lot about if we assume that future conflicts are going to be you know lethal and very fast is oftentimes the language that I've heard attributed to it, if we assume they're going to be lethal and very fast, a form of fighting which relies very highly on extraordinary levels of information and a longer analysis process may not actually be very good for you. You may actually have to adapt that to be able to work with less information. And I think there's a general assumption that more information is always better. And I try to argue about this a little bit in the book. And I think on balance, most of us would accept this as true. I mean, very few people walk into a situation that's dangerous and say, you know what, I'd like to know less. Everybody says they'd like to know more, right? If you think about it, so it makes intuitive sense that we all want 
want to know more about the situations that we're in. But I also want to make the point that knowing more does not always yield better decision making. You can have paralysis by high levels of information. You could have cases under which it exacerbates either organizational or cognitive biases associated with it. And so I think this kind of persistence that's yielding a, a high amount of information has real operational and decision making consequences that aren't necessarily always clear. And again, I'm not arguing for a situation where we turn around and say, we forget this entirely. Let's not know as much as we have to. But I, I think it is a case under which you have to be mindful of it. I think the other thing that is going on with drones, some of the people I spoke to who were involved in this in multiple countries argued this is actually slowing the operational tempo because instead of people being able to move on the ground, people are saying, I'm not sending my guys in there unless you call in a drone. And that's producing tremendous pressure on the, for example, the US Air Force and others to deliver drone overflights for in support of ground operations. And one of the things I try and raise in this is, you know, again, more information is better, but there is a question about whether these trends are really sustainable. A number of people when I did the book suggest, you know, maybe it isn't. Maybe that we need to start thinking about rationing these kind of assets and accepting a degree of uncertainty on the battlefield because it's impossible to have total information dominance. And drones get us very close to that, but in a way that maybe has some adverse consequences that are not, identi not always identified. Yeah. So you mentioned earlier about half of your book is kind of about war and the other half is about peace. And I thought that was a really interesting approach. And you really discuss drones being used not just by the U.S. military, but lots of different organizations of all types, right? And you kind of talk about how drones can kind of, so to speak, level the playing field in the sense that they can be used by terrorist organizations, but also they can be used by other groups like NGOs. They can be used by protesters. They can be used by law enforcement, so on and so on. So should we be concerned at all about drone proliferation? Yeah, I think drone proliferation, certainly in both spaces, and I'll talk about it in two real spaces. The first is in the civilian space. You are going to start to see law enforcement, for example, we already see this in the United States, a number of law enforcement organizations have drones, but you're also going to see NGOs have it, commercial organizations have them. And that proliferation in that space has some consequences that I try and tease out in one of the chapters of the book to suggest why we might be a little bit concerned about it. I think if you add to the overall surveillance capability of a government over a law enforcement organization, on balance, that's a good thing in a lot of ways. Ways, right. So if I lost my child, I would want someone to have drone overflights to help find a missing child, obviously. Right. If we're thinking about crisis situations, we obviously want drone overflights. But there are serious concerns, obviously, about civil liberties. There are also concerns about surveillance. And we have to think about what happens when you start handing drones to other governments that maybe don't have the same civil liberties traditions, maybe don't have the same rights of protection for civilians and what begins to happen. So when we get to the case under which autocratic governments have drones that they can use for crowd control or drones equipped with facial recognition technology, they can then evaluate and identify everybody in a crowd. Well, then you've got to the irreducible point that the drone has increased the overall coercive power of the state. And if you're at that point, I think there are some serious concerns about whether, you know, drone diffusion in that way is a problem. You know, if you see, for example, drones that are equipped with crowd control technology, and there are companies working on this, that you can fly a drone over a crowd and spray tear gas on a crowd or spray water on a crowd and disperse a crowd, I think you really have to ask whether drone diffusion in that way is a good thing. And part of the problem is that a lot of that technology is relatively simple and the genie's already out of the bottle. So you're not going to be able to stop that. You have to think about governing laws and norms to make sure there aren't adverse civilian uses. There are obviously some good reasons to use drones. I talk a lot in the book about humanitarian organizations that are adopting drones for crisis mapping, for example. The UN's beginning to use drones for peacekeeping missions. And a lot of these things, you know, put eyes in the sky for organizations that wouldn't ordinarily have them. But even in those cases, you have to be careful. You know, one of the things that's interesting when you look at human rights organizations is they're turning to drones to document human rights abuses. But you have to be very careful with how you do that, right? Because the, the footage itself is traceable and that may reveal the people who are collecting the footage, you know, just as it does. If you record a cell phone video, sometimes you can be identified on the basis of the cell phone video recorded. You have the same thing with drones. So you know, I think there needs to be some training for some of the actors that are involved in human rights organizations for, for some data protection. And if you're the UN and you're flying drones over a refugee camp, you know, what obligations, legal or ethical, do you have for data protection for the people in the refugee camp? Maybe quite a few, and 
you have to really think that part of the equation through. So we think about trend diffusion in the kind of the peace side of the ledger. There are issues there and there are also a lot of opportunities. When we get to the military side of it, I think the issues on drone diffusion are actually in some cases more serious. I mean, one of the things that we know is that you know roughly about 100 governments around the world have some kind of drone technology around around 30 or so have armed drones and those numbers are growing every year. And so we're starting to see a case we're moving from a world where a smaller number of countries have the technology to a much larger number of countries have the technology. The question is, will they always use it in the way that the United States has? Certainly we know that they won't always have the sort of doctrinal or operational guidelines that the U.S. has, maybe not the long intelligence chain that governs the use itself, but they also may be using it in contested areas or areas that are otherwise dangerous. And so we could start to see them in doing it, for example, in areas like the South China Sea, using drones maybe in a way that is different than the U.S and how that's going to be a particular problem for the U.S. or for other actors. And certainly I want to raise the issue, if you're thinking about drone diffusion, there's also the problem of drone diffusion to terrorist organizations. And it is just simply a fact that more terrorist organizations around the world have gotten their hands on drones and are using them in creative ways to attack military forces to sort of violate air superiority that the United States and others have, but also then to wind up attacking civilian targets. And I think there are serious concerns about that. Yeah, I like your analogy there of the genie being out of the bottle. And in some ways it feels like with this proliferation that there's some sort of Pandora's box being opened with drones. And, you know, this field is in a rapid state of change. Nothing about drones is going to stay the same for very long. So I guess my last question is, where do you think the future of drones is going? You know, are we going to look at this present time as kind of a sort of sea change moment looking back? Or is this part of a normal process that has happened before? So I would say a couple things about the, sort of the future of drones themselves. When we think about the question about whether this is a kind of sea change or an evolutionary dynamic, I think a lot of people argue that drones are just an evolution. They're just the next step that we see beyond banned aircraft to unmanned platforms, and they're more or less doing the same tasks. And I argue that they actually do, because they package so many capabilities together, they do actually represent a really substantial sea change in the way that we are starting to see states interact, whether this would be how states are doing counterterrorism missions, how states are thinking about counterinsurgency, the surveillance demands and requirements that states have, I really do think that because they put so many features together in one particular platform, that we are starting to see a kind of disruptive effect, and they do suggest some kind of sea change. And I think that's going to continue in the future, but it's going to continue in the future with a couple different trends that are really interesting. I mean, one of them, I think, is going to be, obviously, the use of AI as a way of dealing with the information overload question. And I think that's really where we're going to really see AI begin to flourish with drones. I don't think we're going to start to see, at least anytime in the near future, the idea of a kind of AI-enabled drone making its decisions in the air in a kind of Skynet-style way. But I do think the investment will really be in information. The fact that the U.S. is trying to glean as much as it can from the battlefield and is producing so much information that if you can use AI to cut through it and analyze and provide the first cut of information and sift through the sort of volume of data and the volume of imagery that's being created, you're going to really have real operational consequences. So I think when we think about how AI will interact with drones, it's really going to be that sort of first cut of information more than it's going to be anything else. The second major trend I think is important to pay attention to when we think about the future for it is the miniaturization of drones. I think that's one of the big things that you see is that drones, instead of getting bigger, are really getting smaller. And we're seeing you know, the development of the very small drones. And they're ideal for things like you know, intelligence collection, but also for things like battlefield reconnaissance. I mean, we're going to move to a world under which a lot of militaries will have very small drones like the Black Hornet in their pocket that they'll be able to throw up into the air and get a better picture of the battlefield. And insofar as that can lower civilian casualties and lower the casualties of the people using them, the, the military forces using them, insofar as they can make war precise and humane, it's a very good thing to have. And I think that miniaturization is really where we're going to start to go. But we're also, as it miniaturizes and as we get drones in the hands of more actors and as more capable drones get in the hands of more actors, we're going to live in a world under which more and more actors know more and more about the spaces they're operating in. And they have a lot more information richness than they once had. 
And I think one of the questions I try and draw from the book is, on balance, usually that's good. Will it begin to change decision-making? Are we going to start to see riskier behavior as a consequence? And I think there are some real dangers that we might. Well, I'll say this. If the listeners want to get some more information and have a more full picture of what's going on, they should pick up The Drone Age, How Drone Technology Will Change War and Peace from Oxford University Press. Thank you so much, Mike, for being here. If we want to find more of you online, do you have a Twitter or website? I do. I have a website, Michael J. Boyle at WordPress. And you can also find me on Twitter at Boyle. MJ1 at Twitter. Fantastic. Well, I'm on Twitter at Hankenstein with a T-I-E-N and my website is mwhankins.com. All of us are online at balloonstodrones.com. Our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please send us an email at balloonstodrones.com slash contact. And if you'd like to submit an article to us for consideration for publication, please go to balloonstodrones.com slash submission. Thank you and we'll see you next time.